just have to wait for the back, and then and then I have to. Yeah, that's the whole point, right? Yeah, I love it. But Shane, if we don't have Shane say something, he's going to bust in the door and do it anyway. So we may <laughs> as well just let him get a few words in before we start the show. I know. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of True Crime on Easy Street. My name is Kelly Turner, and I'm not a doctor. My name is Scott Wright. I am a mediocre journalist. I'm Katie Givens. I'm not a lawyer. I have one quick shout out. May Proceed. I? May I? Okay. Yes, I have one quick shout out after you. Okay, great. Um, I would like to say a thank you to Deke for listening. Thank you, Deke. And I hope you had a wonderful time in New Orleans. I know it's been a couple of weeks since you've gone, but I hope you had a great time. You going to leave us in the dark on that or is there an explanation to follow? No, Deke is a huge fan of our show. Okay. Um, he, he has a shirt. We got him a shirt. Oh, right. yes, very nice. Yes, he is. Um, he's he's listening to every episode, and so I'm I'm grateful. Thank you so much. I feel like oh, you're saving something it. for the end. No, I'm not. Do we know I'm his not. last name. Where is he from? Yes, we do. His name is Deke Cunningham, and I don't know where he originally resides, but I know he lives uh, somewhere close to Birmingham. I'm not going to give his location out. I mean, yeah, I guess that would. That's not. That's we don't terrible. want to end up on the show in another way. Well, don't show wanna, up at his door, Scott. Yeah, yeah. we're not going <laughs> to. We're not going to give the exact location of all of our listeners. We don't do our folks that way. Yeah. But anyways, thank you so much, Deke, for listening. And uh, Scott, who's your shout out? Stephanie Miller. Uh, she's okay. a resident here in Center. Not for much longer, though. She's in the process, if she hasn't already by now, of moving to Nashville. Uh, oh. She just got uh, engaged, I think. And so she's moving to Nashville with her uh, with her fiance. But in the process of moving back and forth from Center to Nashville... She was. She got interested in the Murdoch case, mm-hmm. and so she found our four-part series from earlier this year about it. We did that back in well, it was May of last year. Murdoch May. Murdoch May. Yeah. Uh, and so she learned. She got caught up on all of the intricacies of that case by listening to us, and so she mentioned that to me. So shout out to Stephanie Miller, and good luck with your life in Nashville. And thank you for listening, Stephanie. Yeah. We appreciate that. Uh, any more shout outs? Are we good, Katie? Uh, that's it. All, all right. right. Buckle up, kids. Um, this is a bumpy ride. Don't talk about today. pulling my hair out. No more. Um, you guys are out of hair anyway, so yeah, we'll, yeah. you'll have to start pulling something else. Um, I didn't realize how crazy this story was, really, when I started digging. I, you think you know something about a case that's 90 years old, mm-hmm. but it turns out you really don't, mm. unless you really dig. And actually, the day that this episode drops is March the 1st, Yep, and that makes it the 91st anniversary of the day that little Charlie Lindbergh was taken from his home. Oh my goodness. Oh, wow. Mm. And before we get started, you know, listeners to this podcast ask me all the time, if the three of us are actually friends outside the show, and I say, yes, I love <laughs> Katie and Kelly. I trust him with my life in almost any circumstance, unless we ever find ourselves in a getaway car and Katie has slid behind the wheel and it's a stick shift because Katie can't drive a manual transmission. You should have never told me that. No, yeah, oh, I cannot. Oh, wait a minute. What? Yeah, I didn't if know that's this. the case, then I'll see you in three to five because we're busted. Yeah, I mean, I get the concept, but no, we're not going anywhere. <laughs> you know, I had a, 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 my parents, well, mostly my dad, who was the one who taught me how to drive, but he was always, he made me learn yeah. on a stick shift and that was very stressful, but. It was stressful. I remember when I learned. I was grateful, but yes. you know, there's not a, are, are there as many stick no. shift cars? It's not really a, a, 
a, a skill that you need that much anymore. It's mostly, I think, now just when you buy one, you're buying one to buy a stick shift. Like that's your choice. My next car will be. I just miss driving one. I haven't had one in ten years or so, and I it's just really miss. It's. I feel like I'm driving the car instead of riding in the car and holding the wheel. Yeah, you know what it I mean. Is. You're driving the car. It is. See, it's I a lot of fun. I don't have any desire to feel like I'm driving the car. Like the car I have now, yeah. it doesn't even have the adaptive cruise Katie's control. Katie's last car, that. she didn't even have to drive. It was a Tesla, so she could just hit a button and take a nap and wake up when she got there. And you know yeah. what? That is so weird to me. I, I think I would- Me too. If I had a Tesla, I would fight with it all the time. <laughs> like, no, I'm You in don't tell me here. where to go. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But Get the problem is with directions, the car would be right because I'm terrible with directions. <laughs> Is that true? Yeah, it'd be a losing battle. If I asked your husband, he would confirm that? Yes, definitely. Oh, you know what? I talked to him yesterday. He and I rode together to Gadsden to watch the Alabama basketball game, and he mentioned to me that he has actually listened to several episodes of the podcast. He said, I talked way too much during the Axeman of New Orleans thing, and I think that's... I think that's pretty much a consensus that I talked too much during that episode since well, it was think, your episode. Well, I think Katie uh, threatened to mute you during yes. that episode. Yeah, that... And then I left that in in editing. <laughs> <laughs> of course she did. Uh, that's great. No, he d- he is a listener now, so maybe Shane oh, will man. be one day, Katie. Mm, yeah. We'll hold our breath on that. Yeah, not at all. All right, so just before we get started, let's do a little bit of history to set the stage for the events. In late February of 1932, less than a week before our story begins, fascist dictator wannabe Adolf Hitler became a naturalized citizen of Germany, which allowed him to run for president in the 1932 German election, even though he had been born in Austria. He didn't win that election, which was held in April of 32. But if you know anything about Charles Lindbergh, you know that I mentioned Adolf Hitler on purpose. Okay. And we will get to that later. Yeah, boo. Store that nugget in a safe place for now. Yeah. And so now our story begins. So just a few days after Hitler became a naturalized German citizen in February of 32, the most famous baby in the entire world went missing. And that on Tuesday, March the 1st, 1932. 20-month-old Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. was abducted from his crib in the bedroom of the second floor in his parents' home in the small East Emwell Township in the Sourland Mountains area of Hunterton County, New Jersey. That was a mouthful. Mm -hmm. Kidnapping? Yes. According to Robert Zorn in his 2012 book about the Lindbergh case, because of declining profit margins in the bootlegging industry, it was kidnapping that the mob increasingly turned to to make money in the late 20s and early 30s. One historian of that era wrote that there had been around 2,500 kidnappings in the country in the three years leading up to 1932. Around, it, well, I'm sorry, was yeah. it typically where they returned? Like they were held for ransom? Hit and, and miss. Some, some wow. of them came home, some of them never did. Oh. Uh, that month alone, in March of 1932, 16, across the country, 16 other kidnappers had been sentenced to various prison terms hmm. in March alone. Newspaper accounts of the day tell dozens of stories of kidnapping plots against the rich and famous, but state police and other investigators combing the grounds around the Lindbergh estate in the days of March the 1st, 1932, did not for very long seriously contemplate that organized crime was foolish enough to attempt something so brazen as kidnapping the most famous two-year-old in the world. So they didn't contemplate it for long. They were like, no, couldn't be organized crime. Correct. Hmm. But still, that very kidnapping did take place. At 9.15 on a chilly Tuesday night in what remains today an area of sparsely populated New Jersey. 
Is this like a rich area of New Jersey, big houses, big this was sprawling? No, this was a secluded area. Very oh, secluded Oh, okay. So you area. live here to have no neighbors. Exactly. Okay. So this was someone snuck in the middle of the night to the toddler or baby. Mm-hmm. It's 20 month old, right? Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Charlie, mm-hmm. as Charles Jr. was known to the family, was getting over a cold that evening and he had been put to bed by his mother and the family's nanny or nursemaid as Betty Gow was known at the time. The baby's nursery was on the second floor of the Lindbergh's large country estate built in the style of a French country home. Okay, I can picture that. Yeah. Uh, earlier that day, despite a lingering case of the sniffles, little Charlie had been running laps around the dining room table, chasing after the family's black and white fox terrier named Wagouche, who was named after a pet that Charles Sr. had had when he was a child. I love that name, Wagouche. Yeah, I think I'm going to name my next dog Wagouche. I love it. Having been pampered and fed warm cereal upstairs in his nursery, little Charlie was asleep by 8 p.m., at which time Betty Gow and Mrs. Ann Morrow Lindbergh, the boy's mother, turned out the nursery room light, closed the door, and went downstairs to eat their dinner and unwind for the evening. The second floor window of the nursery was closed, but not locked. The lock did not yet work on this house, on this window in this house, because the house was still under construction. They had moved in, sort of. I'll get to that. But they, they came on the weekends, but they were still working on the house. Okay. The shutters outside the window would not close. They were warped. They had gotten warped in the rain, and they were going to have to be replaced, so you couldn't close the shutters. Not that they would have anyway, necessarily, but the shutters would not close. The baby's father, Charles Sr., arrived at home around 8.30 that evening a bit unexpectedly because he was supposed to speak at an event at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City that night. Fancy. He did not show up for the engagement, however. He blamed a scheduling error in his office for not being there. He probably just didn't want to go, and it's like, I'll just blame the secretary. That's one theory, (laughs) but that's coming too. All right. When Mr. Lindbergh got home, he asked Betty Gow about the baby's condition and then joined his wife upstairs, I'm sorry, downstairs in the dining room. Around 9, 10 p.m., Lindbergh said later that he heard a noise outside the window. It sounded like a piece of wood snapping in half. Like someone walking over sticks or something? Or a ladder breaking. Oh. But the strange sound did not alarm him enough that he felt like he needed to go outside and investigate. Mm -hmm. He would only remember that later. Here's something that we need to mention, and Katie brought this up a second ago, or we talked about it. Normally, nobody would be in that house on a Tuesday. The Lindberghs had only been coming to the house for weekends uh, since around October of 31. It's when they, it got finished enough that they could go hang out on the weekends. And that was just to get out of Ann's parents' house, which was a few miles away in Inglewood, New Jersey. So they stayed the week with Ann's parents while the house was being built. But they would go down on the weekends and hang out. Construction's probably a little slower in the 30s. Yeah. And, but they were never there on a Tuesday night. This was the first time they'd been there on a Tuesday night ever. And they hadn't even been to the house for the three previous weekends. So this is not a It was very random that they were there. okay. So how would a kidnapper even know that anyone was going to be in that house? Yeah. Was the kidnapping an inside job that involved some of the people who were employed as servants by the Lindberghs or the Morrows? That was a question that would linger for a couple of years. Mm Earlier that day, Mrs. Lindbergh had made the abrupt decision to remain at the new home instead of returning to her parents in order to give little Charlie another day of protection against the cold weather. One more day to get over his cold. 
That impromptu decision by Ann Lindbergh was one of the many aspects of the story that the newspaper and radio press of the day would spend millions of words, both spoken and printed, to try and explain in the days, weeks, and months to come. As we will see, the Lindbergh case was a -a 24-hour-a-day news cycle for the first time in American journalistic history. This is what got the whole thing started. And and Scott, you may do this in, in just a moment, but are you going to go over who this man was, this family? Yes. Okay. Sorry. Absolutely. No, you're good. Uh, you're asking questions that maybe people who are listening are asking. So, I mean, that's what we're supposed to be, you know, okay. perfect. All right. um, to this very day, you can purchase books and stream documentary films that espouse alternate theories about what exactly happened that night and about exactly who knew the kidnap plan beforehand and about who exactly pulled it off. It was just before 10 p.m. when Betty Gow, the nursemaid, returned to the second floor and peeked into the nursery. To her slight surprise, the baby's crib was empty. Betty Gow wasn't in panic mode yet, but that low rumble you are all beginning to hear in your ears right now is the beginning of the sound of a full-blown panic, to borrow a phrase from the time, coming down the mountain. Well, she probably originally thought, oh, maybe his mother came and grabbed him up. That's the next thing she does. She goes down the hallway to the bedroom on the second floor and asks Mrs. Lindbergh if she has the baby. No. Well, is he, you know, at 20 months, can he climb out of his crib? I don't think so. Because I, I know there you know, are some children who are, by that time, they're already climbing out of their crib. Right. Well, Anne says maybe Mr. Lindbergh took the baby down to the library. Even though well-known practical joker Charles Lindbergh had played a prank on his wife a couple of weeks before by hiding little Charlie in a closet. (laughs) What? Yeah. That's a terrible joke. Exactly. Uh, Charles Lindbergh has a history of pranks that go a little too far his whole life. Wow. He once replaced his roommate's water bottle with kerosene and almost killed him. Uh, Well, yeah. So, so Miss Gow doubted the likelihood that he would pull the same prank again just a couple of weeks later. So she leans into the office downstairs, the library, and says, Mr. Lindbergh, please don't fool me. Do you have the baby? Because she's getting serious now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Panic is coming. Yeah. No, he said. And at that point, everybody rushed up the stairs Mm -hmm. to the nursery. The room was still empty, and then they searched every other room and nook and cranny in the house. The Lindberghs and Betty Gow and the two other servants living in the house. No baby. Everyone quickly realized that little Charlie was gone. Terrifying. Lindbergh rushed into the master bedroom, grabbed a rifle out of the closet, and he said to his wife, they have taken our baby. Ooh, now that's fishy. What did he mean by they? Here's what he meant. Mm -hmm. They was the pronoun turned invective that the Lindberghs often spoke aloud with a sneer to refer to the people who refused to allow them to live normal lives. They were the people who exploded flashbulbs in Lindbergh's face and photographed his family's every move. They were the people who used his name without permission to move their merchandise. And now they, whoever they were, had become the people, in the words of author Robert Zorn, who had suddenly delivered a grievous blow that would cast a shadow over the Lindberghs for the rest of their lives. Okay, so so he's 
All right. He says they quite a bit. Yes. Okay. All right. Because I'm thinking about, I don't think I would be at grab a rifle mode just yet. I would be searching outside. He got out, so, you know, outside scouring the area. But I don't think I'm there yet as far as someone has taken my child. Yeah, but you're not the most famous person in the world. That's true. Yeah. I'm not. Yeah. So, yeah. So while Ann Lindbergh began the process of unraveling at the thought of not knowing where her son might be, her husband took his rifle, ran out into the night, hoping to catch the kidnappers in the act. As he flew out the front door, Lindbergh shouted over his shoulder for his English butler, Ollie Watley, to call the police. After a quick search around the house failed to turn up any sign of Charlie or whoever might have taken him, Lindbergh raced back upstairs and was the first to notice the mud on the floor of the nursery. Hmm. There were muddy splotches in three places. On the floor, on the top of a suitcase sitting under the window, and on the windowsill, beside a white envelope. That they hadn't noticed before. They had not noticed it until this moment. I guess they're just looking for a baby. Right. And they're not really paying attention. Because at that point, they probably do think he's crawled out of his crib or something. Like They hope. I'm just kind of, that's mm-hmm. where I would be. Yeah. But again, I'm not a Lindbergh. Yeah. yeah. So. Inside the envelope was a ransom note. The first of a total of 15 ransom notes the Lindberghs would receive from the kidnappers. And we will take a closer look at that kidnap note, that ransom note, in just a minute. But before that, know this. The Lindbergh house sat to answer the question that Katie had earlier, and still does today, in a largely unpopulated area of the state surrounded by wilderness on a 425-acre plot that Lindbergh had purchased after he and Ann got married. Dang, I mean, that's a lot of land to have in New Jersey. Yeah, I know. That's what I thought. It's not, it's not a very, you know, it's, it's not like Alabama. It's the biggest state in the union. Yeah. yeah. Now, that wedding had occurred in May of 29, two years and one week before Lindbergh became the most famous person in the entire world. And here is the short version of how that happened. Over the course of 33 and a half hours on May the 20th and 21st of 1927, 25-year-old Charles Augustus Lindbergh Sr. had become the first person to ever make a solo nonstop flight across the Atlantic Ocean from Long Island, New York to Paris, France. Lindbergh's flight captured the attention of the entire world in much the same way as the successful flight of Apollo 11 would again two generations later. Lindbergh had flown 3,600 miles at just a little bit over 100 miles per hour. Today, his original single-engine monoplane, the Spirit of St. Louis, is displayed prominently hanging from the ceiling at the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. I've seen that. Yes, I have. I have not, but a bucket list. Mm-hmm. I have never been. That's, that's crazy to me. That, that seems like a trip you would take. Oh, I, I know it's a trip I can't believe I haven't already taken. That could Seriously. be a road trip. I, that could definitely be a road trip. Have you? Have you is it D.C.? I've never been to D.C. Oh, wow. That, that shocks me. Oh, well, you got to go. I'm ashamed. All right, we'll see, we'll see you when you get back. Bye. Yep. Done. <laughs> so with his aerial feat of daring, Lindbergh instantly overnight became the most famous, accomplished, and celebrated person in the world. That 33 and a half hour flight is still considered to this day to be one of the most consequential events in the history of aviation, mm-hmm. for it would soon usher in a new era of global transportation. One I'm thankful for because I hate being in the car. Yeah. Well, you can thank Charles Lindbergh. Mm-hmm. Appreciate it. For that. The green light to begin the race across the Atlantic had first begun flashing in 1919 when French-American hotel magnate Raymond Ortigue offered a $25,000 prize for the first successful transatlantic flight. Lindbergh's accomplishment eight years later put $25,000 in his pocket, which is almost half a million dollars today. Wow. 
and his flight had come at the perfect time for the United States. Prohibition was still in effect. The organized crime element was rampant nationwide, and newspapers and radio broadcasts were constantly focused on all of the moral and political corruption of the day. Like Katie said back when we were talking about Patricia Hearst, there's something comforting about the fact that you're being reminded that the world has always been burning. Yeah, it really mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. So the country could use a little good news, and they got it on May the 21st, 1927, from Charles Lindbergh, delivered via airmail, so to speak, by not crashing and dying on his way across the Atlantic, as several others already had in their attempts to win the Ortigue Prize. What an incredible Cinderella story. This unknown comes out of nowhere to lead the pack all the way across the Atlantic. The sandy-haired six-foot-two Minnesota boy who had grown up slopping hogs and milking cows on a farm by day and often slept outside at night even on cold winter evenings so he could stare up at the stars and dream of someday soaring through the sky. That answers my question, I guess, that did he grow up with this kind of money? So I guess no. No, he did not. Is this house being built with this, with this prize money? I assume so. And some of the money he's received, some of the millions and millions he has received since for the movie rights and for the book and for... Oh yeah, being hired to be the most qualified mm-hmm. aviator in the world. And you, you were saying they when you were talking about using their name to sell things. I mean, his name people people want to use that name. Absolutely, on everything now. Yeah, it's like it's he's the Michael Jordan of his time, advertising wise. Mm-hmm. One day he took off from Roosevelt Field in Long Island in basically a flying gas tank, and when he landed at Le Bourget Field in Paris the next day. Floating on fumes, he rolled to a stop as the most famous man in the world. (laughs) Wow. We will tell you a little bit more about Slim Lindbergh after a word from our sponsors. Hey guys, we have a new sponsor here at True Crime on Easy Street. It's A&W Outdoor Services. They're located right here in Cherokee County, Alabama. It's almost time to tidy up your deck. Clean the gutters and spruce up the yard and landscaping around your home or your house or your creekside cabin. And who better to do that for you than the professional crew at A&W Outdoor Services? Call 256-706-7964 and let Alan Wells and his guys do all the hard work for you so you can spend your time this summer enjoying your piece of Cherokee County in clean, carefree comfort. Call Alan Wells today for a free estimate or to get on the schedule before it fills up. And it's going to be full soon. Call 256-706-7964 A&W Outdoor Services. It's time to plan your best vacation ever right here in Cherokee County, Alabama. Many outdoor adventures await. Wet a hook in beautiful Weiss Lake, swing away at Cherokee Pines Golf Club, climb to the best view around at Cherokee Rock Village, hike the Little River Canyon National Preserve, take a days-long splash at Pirates Bay Water Park, and much, much more. The Cherokee County Chamber of Commerce and Tourism has a full list of recommended lodging facilities, RV sites, and campgrounds, and they're all set up to suit your vacation needs, whatever they may be. So come see us from wherever you are. And if you already live right here in lovely Cherokee County, plan your summer 2023 staycation with the Chamber by visiting Cherokee-Chamber.org. 
If you want to keep current on all the happenings in and around Cherokee County, a subscription to the Post-Herald is a great way to do that. The Post-Herald is a one-stop shop for local, state, national, and world news and sports. The Post-Herald also contains crossword and Sudoku puzzles, syndicated opinion and advice columns, and free classified ads. Depending on your zip code, you can get a full year of the Post-Herald delivered to your door for as little as $20 annually during our springtime subscription drive. That's cheap. So call call 256-927-4476 today and subscribe to the Cherokee Post-Herald. That's 256-927-4476. Thank you for being a sponsor. Thank you to our sponsors and welcome back to our show. Now, Scott, Mm -hmm. tell us a little more about Slim Lindbergh. You got it. So after learning self-reliance and self-confidence on the family farm in Little Falls, Minnesota as a teenager, 20-year-old Charles Lindbergh set out for college at the University of Wisconsin in 1922. But after basically running a farm all by himself for five years, he found the rules and regulations of college life utterly irksome. They treat you like a baby, he said to his mother, as he explained his decision to head off in a different direction, which we all know now turned out to be up. Yeah. A lifelong teetotaler who had little time for girls, Slim Lindbergh quickly learned one thing about college life. That life was not for him. Two months later, he began taking flying lessons in Nebraska. Before long, Lindbergh was flying with a barnstorming aerial circus in a plane that had Daredevil Lindbergh written down the side in black letters. He spent that summer looping and darting and flying upside down. He walked on the wings of biplanes and parachuted to the ground from thousands of feet high in front of small towns full of spectators all across the country. My palms are sweating. I know, mine too. I'm terrified of heights. He borrowed $500 from his father and bought his own airplane and then set out barnstorming on his own. At the end of the summer, he sold his plane and joined the Army as an air cadet. Of the 104 students who reported to flight class in Texas in the spring of 1924, only 18 finished, and Slim Lindbergh was at the top of that list. I mean, it's got to be the best place to learn how to fly at the time. Right. You know. Still still is, you know, the the military, but. Imagine buying a plane for $500. Well, I mean, that's, uh, if you multiply it times 17 and a half, which is about the the inflation level, I figured it out. So what is that? Um, uh, Don't ask me to do math. 17 and a half times 500. Wait, 17 and a half times 500? <laughs> well, the, the number yeah. just didn't look right. It was $8,750. You still can't buy a plane for that. I don't, yeah, probably I don't know. Probably not. I've never been in it the was market a, It was a, a really shitty airplane. You can barely buy a car for that. Yeah, it was a terrible airplane. I mean, t- I don't know what tiny little airplanes You could like buy a cost, crappy but... car for that. I yeah. mean, really. Well, he bought a crappy yeah. airplane for that. I'm thinking more, that's like golf cart prices. <laughs> You're not wrong. Um, I don't want to say what our golf cart costs. So there, yeah. Okay. Well, you know what? Good for him. Yeah. Sounds like he was meant to fly. He certainly was. And he he learned how to fly in the army, but he didn't, he decided not to stay in the army. He actually asked for a commission and he never heard back from him. So he left. That's different. Yeah. And got a job as an airmail pilot for, for a year beginning in April of 26. And for most of that time, he was the chief pilot of the St. Louis to Chicago route. You figure that's how he made some connections in St. Louis that ended up him being able to get donors from St. Louis to build his airplane to fly across the Atlantic. Yeah. Which is how that worked out. 
Briefly back on terra firma, Lindbergh was sitting in a movie theater in Chicago in September of 1926 when he saw a newsreel about the Ortigue Prize. And Slim Lindbergh figured, it may as well be me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not going to go into detail about exactly how he got the spirit of St. Louis built and the whole flight and all that stuff. If you want to read a really good book about it, read his book. It's titled The Spirit of St. Louis. Oh, it's his own book. Yes. Well, I would love to hear from his point of view I, then. I'm yeah. going to read it. Awesome. So stamp collecting was a very popular hobby back in those days. And so it's no surprise that very soon after Charles Lindbergh now, the airmail pilot formerly known as Slim, landed in Paris to take one giant leap for mankind 42 years before Neil Armstrong. And after he did that, airmail stamps featuring Lindbergh and his little monoplane were the most popular collectible in the world. I wonder if anybody still has some of those. I'm sure somebody out oh, there yeah, does. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's wild. Not long after he returned home from the States, uh, to the States from his flight to France, Lindbergh's name and likeness were being featured on dinnerware, bookends, perfumes, cigars, you name it. There were over 200 songs written about Lucky Lindbergh and his feat of fearless daring. After a boat ride back home, courtesy of the U.S. Navy, Lindbergh was named Time Magazine's Man of the Year. President Calvin Coolidge awarded Lindbergh the Distinguished Flying Cross at a ceremony in Washington, D.C. The usually disagreeable members of the U.S. Congress, even then, voted to give Lindbergh the Medal of Honor. It was the first time the medal had ever been awarded for a civilian achievement. Mm -hmm. The Secretary of War promoted Lindbergh to the rank of Colonel in the Army Air Corps reserve it was a fitting series of tributes to the newly crowned most famous man in the world and sure enough the whole wide world knew about Lindbergh's flight within days partly because of the recent introduction of a brand new technology motion picture cameras with synchronized sound both his takeoff from Long Island and his landing in Paris had been filmed by Fox Movie Tone News and prints were quickly distributed to their movie theaters all around the world which is where most people saw and now could hear the latest news in the late 1920s. So they'd go to like a movie theater. That's where you got your news. Huh. Fox Movie Tone News with their brand new sound picture record, it was called at the time, titled their Lindbergh Report, Lone Eagle. It was a new nickname for Lindbergh that stuck, so no more slim. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. But all of the cheering and celebrating that had just erupted meant the abrupt end of anonymity for Colonel Lindbergh, as he would be addressed by most people for the rest of his life. Years later, after the worst had come to pass for the Lindbergh family, he would remark, quote, as one gains fame, one loses life. And you know, guys, Princess Diana died in a car crash in 1997, right? Mm -hmm. While running from the paparazzi. paparazzi. Yep. And if you think about it, that car crash... The chase that led to that crash actually began 70 years earlier in the very same city, Paris, when what eventually became the paparazzi was birthed in its dogged pursuit of all things Lindbergh. Mm. And that that makes sense, this this statement that he's making. It sounds like he does not enjoy the fame. (laughs) I think the one thing (laughs) that he, I think the one thing he's a meticulous planner his whole life. He thought everything through to the nth degree. The one thing he never realized, I think was how famous this flight was going to make him. 
I don't yeah, think I don't he think really anybody... saw that coming. Well, you didn't really have celebrity back then. Yeah, I mean, you had Charlie Chaplin, and that was it. Yeah, and he was in search of that celebrity. You know, like Ex- of course he was. The, in the he needed the celebrity. Charlie Chaplin did. Yes. To that so people would go to his career, movies. But, yeah. I mean, yeah. it also furthered Lindbergh's career. It sure but did. It, he just—I I wouldn't have planned on that myself either yeah. at the same no. time. Well, even though he didn't, soon the flames of fame were roaring in the young flyer's ears. There were ticker tape parades and a national tour. Lindbergh flew the spirit of St. Louis to at least one major city in all 48 states. And then he flew it to 80 other cities all around the world. During his flight around the world while Lindbergh was in Mexico City during Christmas of 1927, he met the 21-year-old daughter of the U.S. ambassador to Mexico. And it took two years, but they started dating. Their first date was an airplane ride. <laughs> Which is a, what a pilot does. Sure. Uh, perhaps a mile high club situation. I don't know. <laughs> uh, Probably not in this little bitty plane. Any members of the uh, mile high club in the room today? No. no. Yeah, me either. <laughs> I don't know if a plane had autopilot at this point. I would think yeah. it was probably just a rope and you just tied it around the <laughs> stick and, you know. Oh, my God. Okay. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway, so after three dates, they got married. Oh, wow. 13 months after the wedding, Anne Morrow Lindbergh gave birth to their first child, little Charlie, on June the 22nd, 1930. It was Anne's 24th birthday. Born on her birthday. The Lindberghs, the three of them now, could not go anywhere in the world without being recognized and overwhelmed by unwanted attention. So that's why they built the house out in the middle of nowhere in the backwoods of New Jersey. How did Anne feel about this situation? She seems like she may have grown up in more of a spotlight. Anne was more in the spotlight. Her parents were very wealthy Mm -hmm. all of her life. They lived in a huge estate, even a lot bigger than the house the Lindberghs had built. And so her dad, at the time they met, he was the U.S. ambassador to Mexico. He would later become a U.S. senator. He was a very wealthy business owner before that. So Mm -hmm. she was more used to the servants and the spotlight, not on this level, of course, but used to more attention than... Right. It wasn't as big a shock to her. Right. And so the taking of this baby was was kind of a double whammy because she's from a very prominent, rich family, Mm -hmm. as well as... Being married to someone yeah, who who's is very... Newly rich. He, he's yeah. new money. She's old money. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. And so, like I said, they move off to New Jersey looking for a little... Privacy. Privacy. And then someone stole their baby. Oh. So not even their fortress of solitude was safe. No. And I... I don't understand, though, being... I can't, I I shouldn't finish this sentence because it's going to sound like I'm blaming them because I'm not, but I know that they've thought about this. Why in the world would we not have a window that worked or Mm -hmm. locked or, you know what I'm, and shutters. And if we really want to be private, I guess the seclusion is what they thinking. No one knows we're here. No one knows anything about it. And I'm, I'm terrible for saying that. No, no, you're not. Because know they are saying that to themselves what should fix that window should have shutters they wouldn't have even thought about it on the second floor it's not like you could just walk up to the Mm. window it makes me want to go home i don't know if all my second floor windows work yeah Mm. well lock i guess i should say mr morrow Anne's father always told charles build a fence Mm -hmm. put bars on your windows because that was the what that's what the Morrow estate looked like. It, it was fenced in all the way Fortress around, and probably. he was just a politician and a wealthy businessman. But man. he knew that but this he knew. is what you had to do. But Charles thought 
my answer to the security problem is to move out into the middle of nowhere. So then it's hard. Which to turned get- out to be, well, it turned out to be a bad idea yeah, for then, kidnappers. Yeah. Because it just, it made their job a lot easier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He, I think they figured that out after it was over with. Uh, yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. We're not going to. But I know. I mean, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. right? We're not going to beat Charles up of course for this. Not. No, but, oh, that's terrible. So after the events of March the 1st, 1932, it would be another 30 months before an arrest was made in the most famous kidnapping case in history. 30 months. Everyone who was alive and old enough to listen to the radio or read a newspaper remembered exactly where they were and what they were doing when they learned of the kidnapping of Charles A. Lindbergh, Jr., They all knew where they were again, too, nearly three years later when they first heard the name of the man who was arrested and charged with the crime. Katie, grab your handcuffs from home and have them ready for next week. Oh, Lord. When we tell (laughs) that story. I couldn't resist that. I know, you couldn't. But before the arrest and the trial, the most famous baby in the world had been stolen from the world's most famous parents within two hours of little Charlie's disappearance. New Jersey State Police had blocked off every road out of the state. Cars and houses in the area around the Lindbergh home were searched for days and days and days. By the following afternoon, 15,000 curiosity seekers had flooded the formerly secluded hills of New Jersey around the Lindbergh home. And are they trying to help or are they just peeping? A little bit of both, probably. Mm-hmm. Charles and Anne willingly suffered through the destruction of their landscaping as hundreds of newspaper, film, and radio reporters staked out their front yard, hoping for any morsel of information. So think about the Hearst situation Mm -hmm. multiplied several times. Mm -hmm. Lindbergh figured the best way to get his boy back was to pay the $50,000 ransom as quickly as possible. And he figured he would need the media to help him make clear his intention to the kidnappers. So he suffered through all of this indignity. So he's, he's, He's going, he's going very public saying, we're going to pay this ransom, yes. we're going to cooperate. That's right. That kind of thing. And about the ransom, the $50,000, that's nearly a million dollars today. It's like $890,000 if you do the math. So we know about the 50000 because it was in the ransom note. So let's take a look at that first ransom note. And there are several of these that we'll discuss, and I'll keep them clear. This is number one, the one that was in the envelope. All right, number one. And this envelope, say again, was on the... It was on the windowsill in the nursery. Got it. Note one read, in part, have $50,000, and I'll point out here that the dollar sign was placed after the numerals in the European fashion. Oh. Possibly a clue. Oh, yeah. Have the money ready, R-E-D-Y, misspelled. We will inform you where to deliver the money, M-O-N-Y, after two to four days. Do not notify the police, P-O-L-I-S-E, the baby is in good care. Good spelled G-U-T. I don't, I don't believe that the baby's in any kind of gut care. Yeah. Well. Because this person can't write a letter. Yeah. Now, at the time, would literacy rates have been lower? Like. Oh, certainly. Everybody probably could read and write perfectly. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it's a good question because that ransom note and the ones that follow are going to play prominently in the trial itself. Mm-hmm. And, like and that's a good question. Yeah. And, and the first thing that people notice is the, the, the police with the S and the good spelled G-U-T, those seem like German. 
like somebody whose first language was German. Oh, okay. All right, I'm okay, following. So yeah. that's probably another clue. There aren't very many clues at the scene. So the the ransom note takes on a very prominent role yeah. later on in the courtroom. Okay. There was a closing to the note that explained that all original correspondence from the kidnappers could be readily identified by a signature, signature spelled wrong with the G and the N reversed. Okay. That was a symbol, and it was a pair of interlocking circles and a row of three evenly spaced holes. You can Google Lindbergh ransom letters, and you can see what I'm talking about. It's kind of hard to imagine mm-hmm. until you've seen it, and then you go, oh, yeah, I see what you mean. So we'll put a photo on Instagram. Yeah, but every, every original letter from the kidnappers would have that symbol on it. Okay. okay. So that Signature. makes sense that, that maybe you're dealing with someone who, where English is not the first yeah, language. correct. Okay, okay. Years later, an NSA cryptanalyst theorized that the three holes referred to a three-man kidnapping team and that the interlocking circles, a symbol that dates back to ancient Rome, signified solidarity among the members of the gang of thieves. In other words, no one, if caught, would give up the name of the others. And to retread a phrase that I seem to use every week on this podcast, stick a pin in that. We're going to circle back. Okay. Another of the few significant clues at the crime scene was a three-section ladder found 75 feet away from the house. It was crudely made, but designed with some carpentry skill. Mm-hmm. But look like maybe quickly made? Maybe quickly made, but by somebody who knew what they were doing. Uh-huh. As I mentioned earlier, it did not take long for Charles Lindbergh Sr. to decide he was going to pay that ransom. And he really basically took over the entire investigation. I mean, the man was above reproach. Even the FBI director called him Colonel Lindbergh. Mm -hmm. And that was a young J. Edgar Hoover at the time. Okay. So nobody's going to argue with Colonel Lindbergh about the best way to go about getting his son home. Now, technically, to be clear, J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI didn't have any jurisdiction over the case because kidnapping was not a federal crime in 1932. What? But it is today. Yeah. Because of this case. Because, okay. They call it the Lindbergh Law. Okay. Why would that not be a crime? Nobody had thought to make it, it a federal a crime. Federal it's a state crime. crime. Oh, okay. Federal you can't crime. bring the FBI's investigative techniques and skills to bear on a case because they don't have any jurisdiction. Mm. They fixed that before the end of the year. Well, yeah, because you have a kidnapping. You don't know where that person is. Right could be anywhere right so it's yeah okay part of colonel Lindbergh's reasoning for wanting to take over the investigation was because a lot of the prolific kidnapping cases they were popping up all the time now the cops had a bad habit of proving themselves incapable of dealing with the situation often to the point of incompetence mm, so they just had no cooth about them they or just they- didn't have the skill or the technology or the the sense to know what to do so the money would be paid, Lindbergh said. But he didn't know how to go about doing it exactly. Enter into the picture a retired school teacher and athletics coach named Dr. John F. Condon. The 72-year-old Dr. Condon would soon come to be known to the world by the pronunciation of his initials, JFC, as Jaffsey. I'm going to say Jaffsey so many times in the next two episodes that your ears will bleed. Yeah. So don't quit on me now. You have been warned. Uh, and don't quit on me overall because episode one of the Lindbergh case is coming down the mountain. Okay. We're getting there. So Dr. Condon, Jaffsey, was a huge fan of Colonel Lindbergh's. 
He had a framed photo of the young aviator on the desk in his home office. Japsy took it upon himself to place an ad in the classified section of the Bronx Home News on March the 8th, 1932, in which he offered his services as an intermediary between the kidnappers and the Lindbergh family. Inexplicably, both sides agreed. All right. And so a literal man off the street <laughs> yeah. became one of the central figures in the story of the Lindbergh kidnapping. I mean, a total rando. Yeah. Okay. Before Lindbergh and Jaffsey began negotiating with the kidnappers via a series of classified ads in local papers, Ann Lindbergh had conducted a newspaper interview in which she pleaded for the kidnappers to follow a strict diet for the baby while he was in their care. All around the country, the talk was about one topic and one topic alone in every theater, restaurant, streetcar, and illegal speakeasy anywhere in the country. Who had the gall? to take the Lindbergh baby. Mm-hmm. Mm. Police interviewed the staffers at the Lindbergh home, the staffers at the Morrow home. They interviewed Betty Gow and actually found out her boyfriend, Red Johnson, was in the country illegally and had him deported. She never saw him again. Well, now that seems unnecessary. Gosh. Soon, Jaffsey had been vetted by Lindbergh and his lawyer and was allowed to make contact with the kidnappers via classified ad. The kidnappers were now sending their ransom notes directly to Dr. Condon, Jaffe's home address. What? Yeah. Their initial note to Jaffe had upped the ransom to $70,000, a form of punishment to the Lindberghs, the letter explained, for getting the police involved. So does this man, Jaffe, have a family? He's 72 years old and has a wife. Okay. so He He lives with his wife in the Bronx. So uh, he doesn't have any... Children in the home or anything? Like no, that. I don't think so. I'd be like, what he's got you, time. What are you doing? Yeah. So on March the eleventh, nineteen thirty-two, Jaffe was instructed to bring money to the kidnappers. Their first correspondence sent him on a scavenger hunt for clues that ended up with him being standing alone in a cemetery in the Bronx, Woodlawn Cemetery, to be precise. Mm-hmm. The friend of Jaffe's who went along as his driver that night could not resist one moment of levity. He said to Dr. Condon, at least if they shoot you tonight, we won't have to drag you far to bury you. Oh, gosh. Always good to have that buddy driving the car for you. Always. Mm-hmm. I could just imagine Shane saying something like that to me. No, I really could. Yeah. So the money wasn't ready yet, but Jaffsy wanted to keep this meeting, if nothing else, so he could make contact with the kidnappers and maybe figure out exactly who and what he was dealing with. So he spoke to a man with an accent. It was dark. They stood apart from each other in the cemetery. A man who has fed the appetites of conspiracy theorists and amateur sleuths for coming up on 100 years. Mm -hmm. We will tell you more about Cemetery John in part two. Cemetery John? He identified himself as John and spoke with a German accent. Okay. Ding, ding, ding. Okay. Jaffsy said he needed proof of the baby's good health. So a few days later, the kidnappers sent another note. It was the seventh so far. And it included the little night shirt Charlie had been wearing the night he disappeared. Both Betty Gow and Ann Lindbergh confirmed that it was. It had been laundered. Oh, it had been. At this point, of course, the Lindbergh still had their fingers crossed that everything was going to turn out okay. Mm-hmm. So apparently satisfied with Charlie's good health by the night shirt and with no other option, really, Lindbergh decided to go ahead with the plan to pay the kidnappers a few days later. 
another round of coded classifieds and another around town scavenger hunt for clues to the final location led Jaffsey with Charles Lindbergh driving the car this time to another cemetery in the Bronx, St. Raymond's Cemetery, on Saturday, April the 2nd, 1932. In exchange for the money, Jaffsey was handed an envelope that contained directions to little Charlie's safe location. For days afterward, as per the instructions in that final note, Colonel Lindbergh flew his airplane over the waters around Martha's Vineyard and Cape Cod. The note had said that little Charlie was being cared for by two innocent people aboard a 28-foot boat anchored offshore called Nellie. So the kidnappers have said that they've just handed the baby off to be cared for. He's been cared for all this time. This is where he's been since the day we took him is the implication. And he's being cared for and he's fine. And you have to go get him in 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 your seaplane. You'll have to land out in the water and get him, and then you can fly away with your son. But it didn't take very long for Charles Lindbergh to figure out for possibly the first time in his life that he had been had. Six weeks later, on May the 12th, 1932, a truck driver found little Charlie's dead body in the woods, (gasps) five miles from the Lindbergh home. Based on the condition of his body, he had been dead probably since the night he had been taken. Ten weeks before. How callous and calculating were these kidnappers who could negotiate money for ransom for weeks as though little Charlie were still alive. The world was infuriated, but would not find out who had taken little Charlie for two years. And they want to know. And they want to know. And to hear a lot of amateur detectives out there tell it even today, the world still doesn't know who committed the crime of the 20th century. Yeah. And if you'll meet us right back here next week, same bat time, same bat channel, we will tell you everything you need to know about the trial of the century. And as we all sit here and catch our breath and, and wipe our sweaty palms, yeah. we talked about it before that we were going to need a palate cleanser at the end. Mm-hmm. And so, Kelly Turner. I'm going to provide you with yeah, that. Yeah, put a smile on our faces, please. Yeah, so this is something that. that we're doing this season occasionally when we have to deal with something that's just so heavy. We're going to we're going to find some um something in the news that's going to cleanse our palate and I'm just going to I'm going to read most of this article to you. It is a short article. Okay. Go okay. for it. It's from the huffpost.com. Yeah, all right. Okay. All right. Here's the title. Spilled KY lube leads to evacuation of Alabama post office. I think you've done your job already, but I'm curious to hear the details. Okay. So the, <laughs> this, this article, if you want to read the whole article, is by, I want you to read the whole thing. Okay. Well, it's by, my palms are too sweaty to hold anything right now. It's by Hillary Hansen and uh, post office terrorized by rogue lube. So <laughs> the first uh, statement, this, this article was updated July 15th. 2013. So it's a little bit dated, but still. That's okay. It's news to me. Yeah. So the first sentence says, this certainly didn't make the mail come faster. Oh, no. no. Good grief. Wow. Just right off the deep end. You think it can't get any worse after the headline and then the lead just kills you. Let that whole sentence just (laughs) sink I mean, what, did Shane write this? (laughs) (laughs) So a post office in Gunnersville, Alabama was evacuated after some KY intense arousal gel leaked out of a package and spread throughout the post office at about 9 a.m. on this particular 
day. Uh, I'm just trying to. I'm. I'm trying to imagine the person who wrote this article sitting there after they typed that first sentence, thinking, "Am I going to be able to really get that past my editor? Is he going to let uh, that well, get printed?" But it is HuffPost, so yeah, they did. So, not knowing what the slippery substance was, post office officials evacuated the place and called in hazmat teams. Oh, Two employees actually felt sick after coming into contact with the gel, according to AL. Prudes. That sounds like a little. Um, <laughs> placebo effect yeah yeah (laughs) they were hospitalized but are now in stable condition of course they are good grief of course they're i mean they're they're somebody's thinking workman's cop claim i think i mean they're like we work for the government (laughs) now additionally 12 to 15 other packages were contaminated with the material the jail was addressed to someone in the quote entertainment Mm-hmm. end quote industry mm-hmm. according to the Associated Press the recipient's name has not been released so you know whatever so I mean, that, it could have been anyone and they they, they yeah. don't have to be in the entertainment industry that's yeah. yeah so the US Postal Service Postal Inspector Tony Robinson told AL.com that he has no idea why the employees felt sick since uh, the substance was proven to be non-toxic yeah so, however, if you look on Amazon.com, reviews for the product state that the gel, quote, burned to a painful degree, end quote, and, quote, caused a rash, end quote. I don't know that that's why they had a burning sensation and a rash. So, officials say <laughs> the post office. <laughs> yeah. yeah they that might have been a pre-existing condition. <laughs> may have irritated Yeah. A, yeah. Officials say the post office will contact the sender of the jail and instruct him or her on how to properly stuff it into prevent future package mishaps. Just too many pun opportunities not to take advantage of that last one, I guess. And that's it. That's our palate cleanser. <sighs> they were, I do feel a lot better after that. The post office was completely shut down. By KY Lube. And Gunnersville is not that far from us. Yeah. No, and if we've uh, learned... Less than an hour away. If we've learned anything, look, just... just Pack up your lube correctly. Yeah, come on, guys. I mean, bubble wrap or I don't know. Yeah, whatever throw, you need to pack. Throw pack the, the little lube correctly. cellophane on top of the cap, mm-hmm. have, as they tell you to do when you fly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's 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 be careful with that. Yeah, you're gonna shut down. Everybody's mad because their their mail was late that day, and it was because you know you couldn't pack your lube correctly. <sighs> I know it. Gotta right. hate that. Anyway, so if you want to read that article, I pretty much just read almost the whole thing to you. HuffPost.com. It's by Hillary Hansen. Thank you, Hillary, for that wonderful yeah. palate cleanser. Yeah, and uh, guys, don't forget out there, uh, give us a five-star review. You can go to our Facebook page and get updates on all of the things we tell you every week when the new uh, show comes out, the new yep. podcast. And we are keeping up with the Murdoch case on our Facebook page. Uh, they just recently, well, this is going to land too, at the wrong time for me to tell the latest update, but if it's still <laughs> ongoing, we will let you know about it there and uh, just hang out with us anytime you like. We're always here. Good night, everybody. <laughs>